You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of August 17th, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Turning the page to our next chapter. Note from the publisher, Linda Shapley. Jeffco Baby Cafe celebrates World Breastfeeding Week with support by Joe Davis for the Jeffco transcript. Four carts away, Golden Mines launch free citywide shuttle service by Corinne Westerman for the Golden transcript. Arvada celebrates Whiskey Fest during last second Saturday of the summer by Lillian Fuglet, the Arvada Press, and following up with various articles. Turning the page to our next chapter, note from the publisher, Linda Shapley. Dear readers and supporters, Today begins a new chapter for this newspaper and Colorado community media, and we're excited to share updates on our move to a new printing facility, why that matters, and news of the upcoming launch of a revamped website. In June, we learned that the facility that prints our portfolio of two dozen weekly newspapers and magazines would be closing this month. At the time, we pledged to find a solution that would ensure little to no disruption to our printing and distribution schedule. We conducted a comprehensive analysis of options, aiming to keep costs down and changes as minimal as possible while understanding that Colorado's front range has limited printing facilities available. We are pleased to share that we have identified a nearby printer that is capable of taking on our products and began printing there this week. While the move won't cause significant changes to our newspapers, you'll likely notice a few differences. The most notable change is the size of our newspapers. Moving to a different press, regardless of which option we landed on, necessitated altering the page size. That means a slightly smaller page. Despite the change, you can still expect the same volume of local news stories, advertisements, and other features we're committed to providing to you. We also had to make tweaks to some delivery times, as well as more closely aligning some of our publications geographically. As a subscriber, you may not even notice these changes. The goal was to streamline our work behind the scenes to keep production and delivery as consistent as possible. Our newspapers, printed and delivered to driveways and mailboxes, remain an important platform for getting you local news. Even as we evolve digitally, we know many of our subscribers appreciate the experience of a newspaper, and we're continuing to explore longer-term options for consistent printing in the years to come. In terms of our digital evolution, we're extremely excited to soon be launching a new website that will allow us to publish more quickly. I'll dedicate an upcoming column to these improvements, but we'll share a few specifics here, too. Our publications will soon be under one umbrella, meaning you can't easily shift from one local news source to another to learn more about communities across the region. With more multimedia elements, including audio and videos, we're making our stories more inclusive. The website will be easier to navigate and update as news happens. There's much more to come on that front, and I look forward to sharing additional details soon. In the meantime, thank you for your support of local journalism. We couldn't do this without our members, advertisers, and readers. Linda Shapley is the publisher of Colorado Community Media. Arvada celebrates Whiskey Fest during the last second Saturday of the summer by Lillian Fuglet. Old Town has wrapped its second Saturday summer concert series and street festival for this year, finishing up the summer of fun with one extra event to set it apart. While the August 12th festival had all the same booths, music, and food as the last three, 
This month, it was also home to the Old Town Whiskey Fest. The Old Town Whiskey Fest featured over 30 distilleries for ticket holders to sample from. One area of Second Saturday was set aside for Whiskey Fest, so ticket, ticketed holders could sample whiskey and enjoy the larger fest at the same time. Along with Whiskey Fest, Second Saturday featured a wide variety of vendors, from psychics to tie-dye, for participants to shop from, as well as several food trucks. Split between stages on Grandview Avenue and in Old Town Square, live musicians serenaded the crowds in Old Town. This month's musicians included Bradley Straws, The Dollhouse Thieves, The Barlow, and Buckstein. Old Town Arvada becomes Entertainment District. City Council passes resolution to create Old Town Entertainment District by Lillian Fuglet. Arvada City Council passed a resolution to create an entertainment district in Old Town, Arvada. In a meeting on August 7th, Council voted 6-0 to zero to create the Old Town Entertainment District. It is the first entertainment district in Arvada. Lauren Simpson was absent from the meeting. This resolution comes just over a year after City Council voted to allow entertainment districts. In June 2022, Council passed an ordinance allowing for their creation. To be eligible, an area must be under 100 acres and have 20,000 square feet of businesses with liquor licenses. Arvada's Business Improvement District applied for the Old Town Entertainment District, which is 41.5 acres and includes 28 businesses in Old Town. We're happy to facilitate Old Town becoming an entertainment district in order to facilitate new opportunities for businesses in Old Town, said Joe Hanksler, director of the BID. This does not lift open consumption laws in Old Town, but rather allows businesses to apply for licenses for common consumption areas. Interested businesses would have to create a promotional association to oversee the area and apply with the Arvada Liquor License Authority for a Common Consumption Area License. Common consumption areas would likely be small and would have to be closed off to motor vehicle traffic. All businesses that touched the common consumption area would have to apply for the license together as a promotional association. The promotional association that runs a common consumption area would be responsible for enforcement. In other words, the businesses that run the area would ensure that customers stayed within the correct area while consuming alcohol. I'm absolutely supportive of the direction Business Improvement District is taking Old Town, said Councilmember Bob Pfeiffer during the meeting. You're making Old Town more of a good, well-rounded experience. Jeffco Baby Cafe celebrates World Breastfeeding Week with support. Joe Davis. <clears throat> Jefferson County's breastfeeding mothers got to celebrate World Breastfeeding Week on August 7th with Jefferson County Public Health's Women, Infants, and Children program, Mother's Milk Bank, and the Baby Cafe. The event took place at the Belmar Library in Lakewood, where an activity room in the back of the library was filled with gifts for the mothers, rocking chairs for giveaway, free breastfeeding support clothing, and space for the babies to play in. This is not the first time, first meeting for the Mothers, Mothers Milk Bank, or Jeffco Public Health. They all come together weekly for a support group called Baby Cafe. The group meets every Monday at the Belmar Library. WIC Lactation Program Supervisor Kelsey Rivera explained that the group is part of a network of breastfeeding support groups licensed by Baby Cafe and facilitated by Mother's Milk Bank. The Baby Cafe at Belmar Library is the only one run by Jeffco Public Health. According to Rivera, the Baby Cafe licensing ensures quality and also connects the Jeffco group to a larger network. This means options for breastfeeding families. Quote, Baby Cafe is more recognizable group. Everything is kind of run in a similar way, Rivera said. And so families will know what to expect if they bounce around to different Baby Cafe groups. They just know what to expect. It's beautiful. 
Mother's Milk Bank, based in Arvada, facilitates several groups in the Denver metro area. It is a program of the Rocky Mountain Children's Hospital Foundation. According to its website, the organization is a nonprofit and has become one of the largest nonprofit milk banks in North America. It distributes about 700,000 ounces of donor milk each year. About 80 to 90% of that donor milk goes to the neonatal care units across the U.S. Gregory Lena Gregory, donor relations and outreach manager, said that Baby Cafe is a feeding support group, which is why it has lactation specialists present and available at every meeting. It's a part of the standard for groups everywhere. Baby Cafe is always going to be supervised by a certified lactation consultant, Gregory said. She added that everyone present has been to lactation training, even the Jeffco Wick consultants who are always present. So it's not just facilitating peer-to-peer support groups between the parents, Gregory said, but the people facilitating the group, facilitating the group are trained breastfeeding professionals. Some of the Jeffco Wick lactation consultants present are also bilingual. It is a much-needed feature of the Jeffco Baby Cafe for a few reasons, according to Jacqueline Morales, breastfeeding peer counselor for Jeffco Wick. She explained that there is a language barrier that often causes moms who do not speak English to give up on breastfeeding prematurely. Morales added that the bilingual services let moms get the help they need when struggling with breastfeeding. Quotes, for so, so for them to have somebody to talk to is extremely important, Morales said. Sometimes I don't have the answer. And I'll ask one of the other lactation consultants, even somebody who doesn't speak Spanish at all. I'll ask them their opinion or how they would say something, and then we'll come back to the family. Morales helped translate a mom's comments to the Jeffco transcript about breastfeeding. Lady Winston and her baby are regulars in the group. She explained why she needed the support. The first couple of days, it was very hard to know if the baby was getting enough milk, Winston said. But she explained that she learned how to listen to her body to get cues and to understand the baby's feeding. As time went by, my breasts were telling me that they were full, so I was able to nurse the baby. Now I know that the baby is getting enough, she said. Wick lactation consultant Andrea Perez who also speaks Spanish and helps moms who do not speak English as their first language. She said the service is vital to Latina moms. Spanish-speaking mothers need communication and support like English-speaking moms because breastfeeding is tough in the first few months, Perez added. Quote, If there's that language barrier, then it's going to be very hard for them to continue to breastfeed for three months or longer, Perez said. So then we provide this service and we could help them achieve that goal and explain to them the breastfeeding and support. The mothers in the group later talked about support outside the group from family and friends. Just like offering a quiet place to go, especially when the baby gets to that kind of stage where they are so easily distracted, said Chloe Brooks. Brooks was the first winner of the rocking chairs that the Jeffco Baby Cafe was giving away. Another mother Yarely Reyes said that breastfeeding can be isolating, so a little company is helpful. Most of the time you don't talk to anyone, you don't get anyone to talk to, she said, so they could do that. The mothers, lactation consultants, and others others all agreed, present all agreed that there needs to be more spotlight on breastfeeding. That's why they were celebrating World Breastfeeding Week, which is the first week of August each year. The U.S. also recognizes August as National Breastfeeding Month. Gregory wants everyone to know that breastfeeding support is family support. Quote, Yes, we have breastfeeding information, but we're really open to whatever is working for your family, Gregory said. We want to make sure that everybody gets what they need. For more information, you can find more information on the Baby Cafe online at Baby Cafe USA.org. Jeffco Baby Cafe is one of the many sites. It meets Mondays at the Belmar Library. 
You can find more information on the Jefferson County Public Health webpage at jeffco.us forward slash public hyphen health. Check out the Mother's Milk Bank website at milkbank.rmchildren.org for more information on the organization. Four carts away, Golden Mines launch free citywide shuttle service by Corinne Westman. There's an, now an easy and free way to get around Golden. Colorado School of Mines and the city of Golden have launched all routes for the free or cart shuttle service. The partners hosted a ribbon cutting ceremony August 9th to celebrate the full launch ahead of Mines 2023-24 academic year. The ore cart has four routes. The gold route, which is currently a city pilot program, circulates around downtown Golden. It's operating seven days a week through Labor Day, after which service on Sundays will end. For the full schedule, visit guidinggolden.com. The silver route will circulate around the mine's campus. Starting August 21st, it'll run shuttles every 15 minutes between 6.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. Monday through Friday and 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Saturdays. The Tungsten Route will travel between campus, downtown Golden, and RTD's W Line at the Jeffco Government Center. Starting August 21st, it'll run shuttles every 15 minutes between 6.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. Monday through Friday and 7.30 a.m. to 7.30 p.m. on Saturdays. The Iron Route is an on-demand service between the Mines Campus Downtown Golden, the Coors Technology Center in Northeast Golden, and RTD's G-Line at the Ward Road Station. Service hours are 6.30 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. Monday through Friday, it'll be it's being operated by the West Line Corridor Collaborative and Downtowner, which has funding in place through November 30th. All routes are free to the public, although trips on the Iron Route must be scheduled via the Orcart app. This joint venture between the city and mines should help alleviate both organizations' parking woes provide better access between campus, downtown, and public transit stations, and reduce the number of single-occupancy vehicles on Golden's roads. Both Mayor Laura Weinberg and Mines President Paul C. Johnson said neither organization could host shuttles on its own, so a partnership proved natural to enhance services for the entire community. Quote, the Orcart Something predictable and affordable, Weinberg said at the August 9th ribbon-cutting event on the Mines campus. It's going places people actually want to go. Money well spent. The ore cart is meant to replace the Mines Rover, the low-speed autonomous shuttle that had a four-month pilot in fall of 2021. While it had limitations, it ultimately proved there's a need for public transit across campus and beyond. Mine students and staff members have said. Rena Zhu and Charles O'Donnell, members of the Mine Student Government Organizations, emphasized how students have long wanted to connect to the RTD stations, where they can use their free passes to access almost the entire Denver metro area. Additionally, many students don't have cars, and those who do have trouble finding parking on campus after 9 a.m., they described. While Mines will be adding an on-campus parking over the next few years, Zoo said there will always be a need for a system like the Orcart. Not only will they be convenient for navigating Golden in the winter time when streets and sidewalks are slippery, but O'Donnell said he could have used the shuttles last year when he had to get around campus on crutches. It'll improve the students' lives. Improve the students' lives, O'Donnell said. Student fees are partially funding the service, along with Mines General Funds and City Funds. Two said the student government organization saw how desperately shuttles were needed around the campus and city, so they voted to help fund them. It's money well spent, Sue continued. Putting the pedal to the metals. 
Since June 16th, the city has hosted a pilot program for the Gold Route to help alleviate summertime downtown parking woes. According to data provided by Golden Planner Matt Wimp, the, between its launch June 16th and August 6th, the downtown circulator shuttle had 447 riders. Saturdays were the most popular, accounting for 45% of the route's overall ridership thus far. The most passengers it saw in a single day was 59 on August 5th. Mines is scheduled to take over the Gold Roots operations in September. Overall, Mines is providing the Orcart shuttle services, drivers, vehicles, and maintenance. It's also funding roughly two-thirds of the overall costs, while Golden is funding the rest. Jason Slavinsky, Mines Associate Vice President of Infrastructure and Operations, has previously said the overall costs are projected at $600,000 to $700,000 a year. Meanwhile, Wimp said the City of Golden can offset future costs with $1 million in federal funding it'll receive in 2024 to 25. Mines and city officials have invited all riders to provide feedback so the two organizations can improve the services needed and ensure its long-term success. For more information on the Orcart Shuttle Service, visit mines.edu slash transit or visit guidinggolden.com. Jeffco Public Health Warning and Prevention Tips on West Nile Virus by Joe Davis. The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment reported the first human case of West Nile virus in Jefferson County. The virus was found in mosquitoes in seven Colorado counties, including Jeffco. The department has also reported a historic level of mosquito populations due to the heavy rains this season. The excessive mosquitoes, the first human case of West Nile virus, and detection of the virus, Jeff Coe's mosquitoes prompted the warning. Jefferson County Public Health warns that there is a high risk of West Nile virus infection right now in the county. Residents are warned to take precautions and prevent infection. According to Jeff Coe Public Health statements on the virus, the best way to prevent infection is to avoid being bitten. Quote, West Nile virus is a virus that does not discriminate. Any act or activity can increase your risk of exposure, said Cody Caton, infectious disease epidemiologist for Jefferson County Public Health. While many people only experience mild symptoms, some cases can progress to severe disease affecting the brain with the potential of decreased quality of life or even death. Prevention is simple. Visit JCPH for things you can do to protect yourself and your loved ones. End quote. Jeffco Public Health Department's statement on the virus states a few ways to prevent the virus and both deal with preventing mosquito bites. Quote, everyone should take precautions to avoid mosquito bites. The statement reads, protect yourself, your family, and your community from mosquito bites and WNV by sticking with the four Ds, drain, dusk and dawn, dress, and DEET. Drain. Any standing water around the home, mosquitoes are attracted to such areas. Dusk and dawn are the times of the day when mosquitoes are prevalent. Jeffco Public Health urges residents to avoid outdoor activity between dusk and dawn or during evening and early morning hours. Dress to protect the skin from, long, from bites. Wear long sleeves and long pants when outside. DEET-based Products or alternatives when sprayed on the skin and clothes will prevent mosquito bites. Public Health recommends choosing a DEET concentration to match the amount of time that you will be outside. Use a DEET alternative for children under 6 months of age. For more information on the Jefferson County Public Health's warning about the West Nile virus, check out the department's website. Cities with residential growth caps start to contend with new state law by Elliot Winsler, the Colorado Sun. Lakewood will repeal its residential growth cap over the next two years, the city council decided this week, capitulating to a new state law outlawing such ceilings and backing off threats to sue over the statute passed by the legislature this year. But Golden, another city with a cap, 
punted on August 8th when its city council held a closed-door meeting with their attorney and then didn't take any action. House Bill 1255 passed by the Colorado General Assembly and signed into law by Governor Jared Polis this year prohibits cities from imposing residential growth caps and requires municipalities with existing caps to remove them. The measure is aimed at boosting housing stock to drive down prices. It went into effect this week. Lakewood and Golden are among four Colorado cities that had caps when the law was passed and that are struggling to respond to the law. The other two cities are Boulder and Lafayette, which haven't taken any action yet. City council members in Boulder, which hasn't enforced its growth cap in many years, in June directed their staff to create an ordinance to repeal its growth cap. Lafayette has looked at its options but not taken any action. As for Golden, it's unclear where the direction, what direction it will go. But the move by Lakewood on August 7th quashes the idea that the cities would band together and sue the state over whether or not it can supersede voters' decisions around growth caps. Lakewood City Council passed an emergency ordinance on during an emotional two-hour gathering. The city's growth cap, which was approved by voters in 2019, limits residential developments to 1% each year. In 2022, about 700 units were permitted. The city will develop a new land use plan during the two years and could remove the cap before the end of the period. Quote, what this ordinance does is eventually bring the city into compliance with 1255, but gives the city some time to get there, Lakewood City Attorney Allison McKinney-Brown said. The city is also considering whether to opt into Proposition 123, Lakewood Mayor Adam Paul said, to access affordable housing dollars under the statewide program approved by voters in 2022. Lakewood's growth cap is the newest in the state. Lafayette's was enacted in 1995, amended in 2012, and revised again in 2017 to encourage construction of affordable housing. Golden's was approved in 1995. Boulder's cap was placed in 1975 and amended in 1995. Members of the Lakewood City Council attempted twice since the bill was signed into law to enter executive session to discuss how to respond. But the efforts were blocked both times by members of the council who argued the discussion needed to happen in public view. When asked by members of the council if it was legal for the state to impose the law, a member of the city's legal team said she couldn't comment in public session on that question. There were two other options for the city council outlined by their legal staff. One option, which Councilwoman Mary Jansen attempted to pursue in a motion, asked the city staff to not recognize the law as valid and to continue enforcing the city's strategic growth initiative. It failed with a 7-4 vote. The city also could have voted to repeal their ordinance immediately. In an interview with the Colorado Sun in June, Paul indicated that the city council was considering fighting the legislation's legality. I don't know if everybody on my council would be willing to say, yeah, state of Colorado, you have the authority to do this, he said at the time. Paul has been a vocal opponent of the growth cap and said if it was removed, he didn't think there would be much substantial change to the amount of development in the city. The Lakewood City Council members who voiced support for challenging the law argued that the state doesn't have the right to preempt the will of voters in their city. Lakewood seldom turned developers away because of their growth cap, Paul said. House Bill 1255 gives cities the option to enact a temporary anti-growth law for one of three reasons. A declared disaster emergency, to create a new land use plan, and to acquire additional public infrastructure, services, or water. Colorado Sun staff reporter Jesse Paul contributed to this report. The story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the states. For more, and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media.
Local voices read with pride. Jerry Fabianic, columnist. It's August, which means it's back to school for millions of children and young adult Americans. August also presages banned book month, September. Unless you live under a rock, you're aware that open reading and the free exchange of ideas are under withering fire in an ongoing crusade against the First Amendment. According to the American Library Association, ALA, there were 1,269 demands to censor library books and resources in 2022. It was the highest number of attempted book bans since ALA began compiling data about censorship in libraries more than 20 years ago. That nearly doubles the 729 challenges reported in 2021. Also in 2022, a record 2,571 unique titles, a 38% increase from the 1,858 unique titles in 2021, were targeted for censorship. Of those titles, the vast majority were written by or about members of the LGBTQ community and people of color. Of the reported book challenges, 58% targeted books and materials in school libraries, classroom libraries, or school curricula, and 41% targeted materials in public libraries. The top 13 targeted books were number one, Gender Queer, a memoir by Maya Kobabi. Number two, All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. Number three, the Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Number four, Flamer by Mike Curato. Tie, Looking for Alaska, number five by John Green. Tie. Number six, The Perks of Being a Wallflower by Stephen Chbosky. Number seven, Lawn Boy by Jonathan Evison. Number eight, the Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie. Number nine, Out of Darkness by Ashley Ho Perez. Tie with number ten, A Court of Mist and Fury by Sarah J. Moss. Number eleven, Crank by Ellen Hopkins. Tie with Me and Earl and The Dying Girl by Jesse Andrews. And number thirteen, this Book is Gay by Juno Dawson. But defenders of the First Amendment are fighting back with their voices and their money. This past June, a couple of mind cleansers in San Diego launched their own self-righteous sneak attack. They checked out and held hostage nearly all the LGBTQ books from a display in the Rancho Pinasquitos branch of the San Diego Public Library. In an email to the head librarian, they said they wouldn't return them unless the library permanently removed what they considered, quote, inappropriate content. The stunt was nothing short of literary ransomware. The librarian was dumbstruck, but soon after she got a big-time gift. Actually, lots of gifts. Boxes and boxes packed with copies of the books the hostage-takers checked out started to arrive at the library. Apparently, the San Diego Union Tribune got wind of the nefarious ploy and reported on it. Roughly 180 people, mostly San Diegans, gave more than $15,000 to the library system with the city anteing up over $30,000 more toward more LGBTQ-themed materials and programming. The ALA points out that polling shows that voters across the political spectrum oppose efforts to remove books from libraries and have confidence in the professionals at libraries and school teachers to make good decisions about their collections. It's a no-brainer why. There is nothing more un-American than censorship, and an increasing number of Americans are seeing the crusade against free thought and expression for what it is. According to a Fox News poll in March of this year, book banning by local school boards was the fourth most concerning issue among parents. 77% were extremely or very concerned about it. 
That was up 11 points since May of 2022, when 66% were extremely or very concerned about it. It turns out that moms are more worried about book banning, 80%, than dads, 73%. But both statistics indicate a high degree of anxiety about the crusade to purify thought. The poll also indicated a 7-point drop from 80% to 73% in anxiety about what is being taught in public schools. The poll shows that parents and the public at large are becoming more educated about the truth of the situation and are moving from discomfort to outrage. I take that as a glimmer of hope that the war on freedom of thought is being counterattacked more forcefully. I continue to be inspired by Dr. Azar Nafisi's heroic story about hers and her female students' attempts to read books from Western literature and theocratic Iran. In quotes, read dangerously the subversive power of literature in troubled times, Nafisi addresses the war theocrats are waging on freedom and thought here in America, the land of the free, and shows how it impacts our everyday lives. She also reminds us, how it is through literature, from new releases to the great works of literature, that lovers of freedom can fight back. In this epic struggle, every free-thinking American is a combatant. Consider taking the fights to the enemy by reading books from the top 13 list and or from the multitude of books, even classics like To Kill a Mockingbird and Of Mice and Men, that have been banned or faced banning over the years. I know that will be on my September reading list. Jerry Fabianic is the author of Sisyphus Wins and Food for Thought, Essays on Mind and Spirits. He lives in Georgetown. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading, ACLU sues Colorado Springs for unjustifiable search of housing advocacy nonprofit and home by Robert Davis. From Denverite, I'll be reading, Attention Denver Property Owners, You Can Now Look Up What the City Will Charge You for Sidewalk Repair and Building, by Rebecca Tauber. And, Denver Urban Garden staff are making a union run. They're asking management for voluntary recognition, by Kevin Beatty. From Westward, I'll be reading, Trees removed from Congress Park to make way for sidewalks. Over 60 could be impacted, by Benjamin Neufeld. And Family of Adam Fresquez Calls for Justice in Tesla Charging Station Killing, also by Benjamin Neufeld. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. ACLU sues Colorado Springs for unjustifiable search of housing advocacy nonprofit and home by Robert Davis. The ACLU of Colorado filed a lawsuit on July 31st against the City of Colorado Springs, its police officers, and the Federal Bureau of Investigations for allegedly obtaining Facebook messages and other personal data from a housing activist and a nonprofit organization without a warrant. In the lawsuit, which was filed in Denver's District Court, the ACLU alleges that Colorado Springs officers targeted Jacqueline Jax Armendariz Unzueta and the nonprofit Chinook Fund following a housing rights march in July of 2021. The Colorado Springs Police Department arrested Unzueta and other activists during the march and charged them with minor violations. However, CSPD then used those minor charges to execute dragnet search warrants of the activists' personal devices and Unzueta's home, according to the lawsuit. The lawsuit also claims that the CSPD did not have probable cause to search Unzueta's devices or the Chinook Fund's private information. Instead, the CSPD allegedly relied on the claim that organizers were using the devices to share messages and photos which ACLU of Colorado Legal Director Tim McDonald 
argued would eviscerate the Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable searches and seizures. The warrants targeting Chinook and Armendariz were part of a pattern and practice of unconstitutional actions intended to teach activists a lesson. Colorado Springs police would retaliate against political expression with dragnet warrants to chill free speech, the lawsuit reads in part. The Denver Voice reached out to the city of Colorado Springs, CSPD, and the FBI for comments about the lawsuit, but did not immediately receive a reply. The ACLU's lawsuit is not the first time that CSPD has been ensnared in a legal battle over its policing tactics. In June of 2020, a CSPD detective posed as an activist with the Chinook Fund and gained access to the organization's internal chat groups, membership rosters, and email accounts, according to a report by the Colorado Springs Independent. The same thing happened at other left-leaning organizations like the local Democratic Socialists of America chapter, the Colorado Springs Tenants Union, and the Colorado Springs Mutual Aid and Solidarity Union. CSPD officers also seem to have targeted the activists who participated in the march, according to the lawsuit. For example, one officer was caught on tape saying that the activists would get a boot to the head, while another exclaimed, just get on that bullhorn and be like, hey, if y'all would like to see a parade and like to see these motherfuckers to quit interrupting it, just handle that for us. Stone them all to death. Our Constitution recognized the profound danger that these types of warrants would have on freedom and liberty and precluded them, McDonald said in a press release. Indeed, these types of general warrants were common in the time of King George and helped lead to the American Revolution. This case is about love for my community, Unzueta said in a press release. I hope CSPD will never again target, terrorize, and attempt to silence others as they did to me. The next two articles are from Denverite. Attention Denver property owners. You can now look up what the city will charge you for sidewalk repair and building. By Rebecca Tauber. Last November, Denver voters approved an ambitious plan to fix Denver's sidewalks and build them where there currently aren't any. The plan calls for the costs to be partially covered through fees on property owners starting in 2024. That figure is calculated based on how many linear feet of a given property faces the street. Fees also vary based on residential versus commercial property and the type of street the property faces. Since the aim of the program is to both repair and build sidewalks, owners with properties along streets without sidewalks will still pay the fee. The amount is based on the number of linear feet a property faces a public street, not how much it faces a sidewalk. Now, property owners can find that exact figure by using an online search tool from the city. Users can look up their cost by putting in their address, including north, south, east, and west directions on their street. Here's what property owners should know about how fees will be collected. Some neighborhoods can get a 20% fee discount if they are located in areas identified as Neighborhood Equity and Stabilization nest, neighborhoods. The city's tool will also indicate to you if your property is in a nest area. Some properties will come up in the search tool with $0 fees. This means they either do not face public streets and will not have fees, or they are part of a homeowners association, HOA, and get billed separately through their HOA. The fees are calculated using information from the assessor's office. Owners who believe their information is incorrect can fill out an online form. The city still does not know how much the program will cost in total and how long it will take. When campaigning for the ballot initiative, advocates estimated that the program would raise more than $40 million per year, which could be bonded to raise $850 million, fully funding and building the project within nine years. But a city analysis of the initiative found that the project could take around 27 and a half years, with a shortfall of $7.3 billion over that time. City officials said the major gap in cost would come from the price of acquiring land to build new sidewalks. Department of Transportation and Infrastructure spokesperson Nancy Kuhn said the actual cost and timeline are still unclear. We're doing an analysis of that. We hired a third-party person to do that, she said. 
they're in the process of working on that and it's not finalized yet. So I think we'll have more to share on that. Denver Urban Gardens staff are making a union run. They're asking management for voluntary recognition by Kevin Beatty. They work with gardens, so they like garden puns, Carolyn Sprague said. Thus, it's only natural that Denver Urban Garden Workers United say they want to sow sol solidarity. This week, a group of 10 DUG workers signed a letter to management saying they want to start a union and giving their bosses until Friday afternoon to voluntarily recognize their effort. If the nonprofit's leaders don't, Sprague and her colleagues plan to hold an election to see if they can officially collectively organize and negotiate a contract on pay and working conditions. I think our story may in some ways be unique in that we love where we work, Sprague told us on Thursday. This union in no way reflects a uniform feeling of discomfort or frustration for us. It's really got a lot of excitement and hope in it. Brooke Gabbert, Denver Urban Gardens board president, said in a statement to Denverite that the board is learning about this request and will work through this process as necessary. We are actively engaged in conversations with the entire DUG team and look forward to ongoing dialogue that will ensure DUG remains a vibrant and impactful organization, the statement continued. The nonprofit began as a grassroots movement in the 1970s, its web state, website states, when Northside Denverites worked to transform a parking lot into a place where a group of Hmong women could grow their own food. The Pecos Community Garden, completed in 1978, is still home to crops on 20 plots of land in Highland. The group formalized its nonprofit status in 1985 and now boasts 193 gardens across six country, counties in the metro. Shay Moon, one of the organizing staffers, said he and his colleagues hope DUG leadership will recognize that their union push is in line with the nonprofit's original spirit. There's a real through line here with a union forming now, he told us. The organization has grown quickly in the last year, Moon added, which is one reason why it may be appropriate to organize. There are currently about 20 full-time employees on staff. The 10 who signed the unionization letter all started working there in the last year or so, he said. Denver Wright reached out to two employees who have worked there longer than 12 months. One didn't respond. The other declined to comment. DUG has doubled in size in a year, and I think that growth has been imperfect, he told us. Our focus at this stage is we would like for the decision-making processes to be a little more democratic and transparent. He and his colleagues would like to have input on funding, organizational priorities, and where new gardens might go, which he said is happening in a black box right now. In 2021, DUG controversially sold the El Oasis Garden property in Highland, which his former executive director said helped him get out of debt. Moon said his feeling is the nonprofit is on fine financial footing now and that they can afford to let workers in on how they use their funds. In the last few years, national news outlets have focused on an organizing wave in all corners of the country. We've seen it most recently with film industry writers and actors, not to mention high-profile organizing by Amazon workers. Starbucks employees have submitted union paperwork around the country, including in Denver. In the last few months, employees from Casa Bonita, the Mercury Cafe, and the youth homeless shelter Urban Peak have made pushes to unionize too. Though Sprague said DUG's organizing effort is a little different, since they're not framing this about pay or the nature of their work, she said she has been inspired by the momentum she's seen elsewhere. Absolutely. I mean, I think when you see other workers coming together and articulate their rights, it is the most powerful thing that you can witness as a worker, she said. It plants a seed of hope. It really encourages you to look around and talk to your co-workers. It gives you points of reference. It gives you examples of what works and what doesn't. She said DUG Workers United didn't say much to outsiders about their growing movement, but she's heard from other local unions since they announced their intentions. DUG Workers United aims to become part of the Denver Newspaper Guild, a subsidiary of the Communication Workers of America, 
which Sprague says has had success unionizing nonprofit employees in the area. The following articles are from Westward. Trees removed from Congress Park to make way for sidewalks. Over 60 could be impacted by Benjamin Neufeld. A new sidewalk and other accessibility improvements to the playground at Congress Park could have impact over 60 trees, according to Denver's Department of Parks and Recreation, and six have gotten the axe. Sacrificed in favor of concrete, reads a makeshift memorial set up by the remains of one chopped tree. City contractors have already removed at least six trees from Congress Park to make way for a walkway connections to the playground. While the changes will bring obvious benefits to anyone with accessibility issues, while also doubling the size of the play area, according to project manager Chris Schooler, some neighbors are still mourning the loss. I think what happened with the trees is awful, says Victoria Epler, president of Congress Park Neighbors, a registered neighborhood organization for the area surrounding the park. The makeshift memorial that popped up recently includes a bouquet of flowers and a photo of one of the slain trees. According to a city contractor, four of the six trees that were removed were healthy, and at least one was a very big elm tree. The others were a medium-large locust tree, two medium-sized locust trees, and a 35-foot-tall spruce that was declining in health. Schooler says that he posted a flyer on the large elm tree notifying people of the impending removal. I got half a dozen emails and phone calls asking why we were doing that, he recalls. The pushback prompted him to call city forester Mike Swanson, who checked out the tree and determined that the root damage the playground construction would cause, combined with the age of the tree and the fact that a major section of it had already been cut out at some point, made its removal the right call, Schooler says. According to Swanson, he and the forestry department are working with DOTI now to try to find a way to work around trees for future sidewalk projects. Epler visited the playground area with Parks and Recreation Deputy Executive Director Scott Gilmore and was aware of the need for new sidewalks, but says that I would hope that they could site the sidewalks in such a way as to preserve the historic trees, but I have no control over that. Schooler has heard this plenty of times before and says that people often ask, couldn't you just curve the sidewalk? He typically tells them, well, yes, but then you start impacting other trees. In the area that will go under construction, Schooler has counted somewhere between 60 and 70 trees. While some of those may be impacted by construction, with possible damage to tree roots as a result of digging, the current plan is to work around the trees as much as possible. It's not like we're just taking the trees out without any thought or recourse, he says. To make up for the lost trees, 16 new trees will be planted near the renovated playground. According to Parks and Rec spokesperson Cindy Karwaski, the new species will include burr oak, western catalpa, chinkapin oak, royal raindrops crabapple, ginkgo, shadblow serviceberry, and swamp white oak. The trunks of the trees that we're taking down will be recycled, Karvasky says, noting that some of their wood chips would be used in the new playgrounds. The construction at Congress Park is part of the Congress Park Playground and Walk Improvements Project, which aims to give the area a proper facelift. The project will build on community input to redesign and expand the existing playground to meet play, safety, and accessibility needs, reads the project description. The project will complement the improvements made at the adjacent pool and also address the need for improved sidewalk connections throughout the park internally and on the perimeter. Schooler notes that the current playground is undersized for the area and not compliant with the Americans with Disabilities Act. With this project, we're hoping to get that park completely up to code, he says. The construction will also bring a sidewalk to the park along East 8th Avenue. There's never been a sidewalk there, Gilmore notes, and we need a sidewalk, so we've been working with DOTI on that. Construction for the project is set to begin this fall and wrap up next summer. Family of Adam Fresquez calls for justice in Tesla charging station killing by Benjamin Neufeld. 
Months after Adam Fresquez was fatally shot at a Tesla charging station in Edgewater, his killer's identity is known to police, but that person still hasn't been arrested. Fresquez's family says enough is enough. These last three and a half months have been complete hell for us, said Adam's sister, Crystal Fresquez, at an August 11th protest held outside the Jefferson County District Attorney's Office. Honestly, it's bullshit that we're even having to deal with this, she blasted. The person that killed my brother should already be behind bars. Family members and supporters called on Jeffco DA Alexis King to use her influence and authority to push the Edgewater Police Department into making an arrest after detectives questioned the alleged killer, who allegedly turned himself in on the same day of the shooting and claimed self-defense, and then released him hours later. We can't even mourn, Crystal told reporters. We can't even grieve my brother because we're too busy fighting for justice for him. Fresquez, 33, was killed on the morning of May 3rd in the parking lot of Edgewater Public Market near West 20th Avenue and Depew Street, according to police. On May 9th, Edgewater police officials put out a Facebook post asking for the community's assistance to see if anyone witnessed a disturbance or road rage type incident between similar vehicles immediately prior to the shooting. The lead suspect turned himself in later in the day and was released after being questioned. We don't understand how he was released two hours after shooting and killing my son and leaving him to die in a parking lot, said Lina Mendez, Fresquez's mother. We want accountability, added Juan Mendez, Fresquez's father. We're looking for justice. We want some answers as to why the shooter is not behind bars. Dozens of people showed up to the August 11th protest to support Fresquez's family and call on the DA's office for justice. This is the third demonstration the family has held since Fresquez was killed. The individual that shot Adam is not currently in custody and has been cooperating with the investigation, said Edgewater Police Chief Eric S. Sonstegard in an August 11th email to Westward. It's our intent to meet with the first judicial district attorney's office in the coming weeks to present the case for potential criminal filing. Sonstegard added, I have been in regular contact with Adam's family and was in fact meeting with his mom and dad this morning. I respect their right to protest and want nothing more than to bring some form of comfort and closure to Lena, Juan, and their entire family. and cannot put into words the empathy I feel for a mother and father that lost a child. I have worked with dozens of families over the past three decades that have lost a son or daughter, and it gets worse every time. Lena and Juan Mendez said that they are not satisfied with how the meeting with Sonstegard went. He's adding another two weeks, is what Juan says he learned at the meeting. Forensics is what we were told that they were waiting on, Lena says. But we've been waiting on forensics for about a month and a half now. The pair doesn't feel confident that the investigation will go anywhere, saying, We don't know. That's the problem. That's why we're here. The family was seen trying to get Alexis King to meet with them face-to-face during the protest, but they were told that King was not there. Jefferson County District's Attorney Office spokesperson, Brianna Boatwright, said the office was aware of the protest, telling Westward, It's important to clarify that this case has not been presented to our office for charges. We have been assured by the Edgewater Police Department that they are actively investigating Mr. Fresquez's death, and therefore, any decision or action from our office at this point would be premature. She adds, We again offer our sincerest condolences to Mr. Fresquez's family and friends and continue to maintain open lines of communication with the family's representative. We understand that loved ones are frustrated and respect their right to peaceful protest. Mayor Johnston puts micro-communities plan into motion for Denver's homeless problem by Benito L. Kelty. On August 16th, Mayor Mike Johnston made his next big move in the city's ongoing battle against homelessness, revealing that his homeless resolution team had started requesting proposals from local organizations to build and operate micro-communities for people living on the street. The move gets Johnston one step closer to his public pledge of sheltering 1,000 individuals by the end of the year, 
and brings the housing portion of his attack plan more into focus. According to Denver's new mayor, on August 11th, his team started looking for nonprofit organizations willing to build, operate, and provide supportive services, such as mental health or substance abuse treatment, for 40 to 100 people across a collection of 7 to 10 groupings of small housing units, or micro-communities, distributed throughout the city. Each one would provide bathrooms and trash pickup. Nonprofits had carried out similar projects in recent years in the metro area. One example is the beloved Community Village, which comprises 11 tiny homes near the intersection of Interstate 70 and Colorado Boulevard. Aurora currently has 30 pallet shelters measuring 8 feet by 8 feet that the city and nonprofits work together to build and manage. Several requests for proposals have been made available for nonprofits to outline how they'd bring city-funded micro-communities to Denver. The RFPs aimed at bringing in builders are separate from those for service providers, Johnston said. The RFPs for construction have yet to go out, but the city has at least one posted for operators and supportive services. The mayor is looking for 